I know sometimes y'all probably get tired of hearing me say this, so I want to prelude it with like a like a free little mini sermon for you. Do you guys believe that God can speak to you? Like he knows when to speak to you, how to speak to you, where it's going to get through the most. I, I really believe that. You know, whether it's, I don't care if you're working in your, at, your, at your field in the house or, you know, if, you, if you're working on your car or if you're just sitting in your car alone, if it's complete darkness all around, if it's a Sunday morning through music. Because um, this, this week when I read this chapter, and you notice we stopped about halfway through, um, that was for your benefit so you can get to lunch before dinner time. Oh, we won't, we won't cover the whole thing. But when I read this thing, I had to change about halfway through a viewpoint I had that made a drastic difference on the way you interpret the chapter. And not to say that it can't be interpreted both ways, but, but this chapter is just so full of so many different character references for you and I to apply to, uh, that it, that it blew my mind. So, so even up until this morning, you know, when, when God had give you something, the devil sometimes would try to, try to get in there too. You know, sometimes you don't hear God audibly, which I don't know too many people who like regularly hear God audibly, maybe every now and then or, or, you know, once in a lifetime kind of thing or, or something like that. But, 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 you know, God often speak through your thoughts and, and, and into your mind and, and directly into your thinking process and, and then into your heart and, and whatnot. But that, that's really the same way the devil speaks to you. You know, you think about it. It's a battlefield of the mind. He'll try to get his two cents in there just as quick. So even up until this morning, I, I knew like that second interpretation was a little bit better for what, what God wanted out of this chapter after, after looking at the setting and, and where this chapter is in this book and all this stuff. But even up until then, there was, there was that extra thought, you know, that the Satan had thrown in there. Are you sure? This is what you spoke. Like even to the point where I almost went back and took old notes and brought them with me this morning. That's, that's how tricky the devil will get with you now. And then the minute the very first song came on and then the next song, and in the next two songs, God was just steady confirming. No, no, the, the, the thoughts you got, it was from me and it's the right thought. Uh, so, so God's got something special planned for us today. There's no doubt, um, about it. And I'm going to ask Stacy and the worship team if they don't, uh, throw stones at me like, like Shimmy does. Um, can we do you say again at the invitation and you may see why as we go through this thing? Um, if you're visiting with us or, or just, just not paying attention, you know, we, we don't really talk as far as during the week. I, I don't tell Stacy what she has to sing. I don't tell Carla what they have to play. Um, I believe the spirit, if it's a spirit led service, he will line it all up and he always does. Um, so, so we're going to are going to switch the invitation though. Um, but here's where I want us to be. It's been a few weeks since we, we've jumped into this thing and I'll try to make a point to tell you where my, my theology changed a little bit halfway through this thing when we get there. Uh, but we left David, uh, almost three weeks ago now since Mitch spoke two weeks ago and then, uh, we did Father's Day last week. And when we left David, he's on this abandonment of the throne section of his life. Um, yet again on the run. Um, yet again in trouble. Yet again going through problems and going through situations he don't want to be in. He's got himself. He's got his family. He's got his servants. And they're fleeing Jerusalem. And to make matters worse, if it couldn't get any worse, is why he's on the flee of Jerusalem and, and on the run from the throne. It's his own son that's coming after him. It's his own flesh and blood that wants to overtake daddy, that wants to overtake the throne, that wants that position to king. So, so why David's on this run? He's in fear for safety of himself, safety of his family, his friends, his servants. And one of the things we said on that, that third week ago in, in safety for his nation is that he knows at this point, for some reason, it's better to flee and save the, the, the energy and fight another day. Probably one of the biggest lessons we, we, we got from that week was, was just understanding sometimes you got to back away. And get time to regroup before you go back into the fight. And I think that's something we need to need to put into practice sometimes. But but I can't imagine just how sad King David has been because here at this point, he's he's crossed the Jordan River, he's he's got to the Mount of Olives that we talked about at the end of chapter 15, and he's prayed over these people. Chapter 15 ended talking about him weeping over the people and praying for the nation and, and, and all the people involved with, with all this going on. So then we open chapter 16, which Matthew just read and did an awesome job at it with an introduction into some people. So think about it. The scene is set. He's weeping. He's crying. He's on the run and he's praying for people. And then we open the very next chapter with him being introduced to some people. And I just wonder sometimes if we've been praying over some people and then we get introduced to the people and it doesn't go exactly like we thought and exactly like we hoped. It had gone. 
So if you, if you got your Bibles, it should already be open. If not, chapter 16, very first lesson, very first thing we got to deal with. You saw the title. We got to deal with Zeba's deception. Anybody ever been deceived? Anybody ever did? See, y'all was quick to answer that. How about this one? Any of y'all ever did any deceiving? <laughs> so we're quick to have been deceived, but we're not quick to admit to being the deceiver. Look, look at where this thing, this thing starts at. This all looks really good at the very beginning. The first two verses, Zeba meets David with these supplies. And it even reminds us of who Zeba is. Zeba, the servant of, what'd you say, Mithimidi? And then you said whatever. So I'm, I'm a key. I told him I'll pronounce it however you pronounce it, man. So that we're together. You know, we're, we're sticking strong in this thing. So Zeba, the servant of Mephibosheth, the, the son of Jonathan, whom David had showed great kindness to in chapter nine. So, so I want you to picture this now. Put yourself where David is. You're on the run. Everything's been stripped away from you. And you, the first person you run into is a friend. Yes. Thank God. Wonderful, right? You're going to get a good report finally. This is the guy who was lame. You know, we, we talked about it before with Jonathan's son that, that had got crippled at birth and couldn't take care of himself. But David, David, remember, he said, oh, you know what? I've made this promise. Jonathan is my best friend. I'm going to make sure that guy gets everything that's his. I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to make sure he's taken care of forever. So he has set the stage up. Awesome. And this, this guy, Ziba, is the first guy he meets and how good it looks. Because Ziba's there and he's providing donkeys saddled with equipment. He's meeting all the needs. He's providing all the essential supplies. Well, I did have to get a, a little little humor for you. You notice he lists all this lots of stuff, and then there's only one sack of wine. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're about to have a bad problem, you know, a, along the journey. But anyway, so, so he's getting all this. And, and the very first thing, I got to say it now so that you understand what we're about to go into in verses 3 and 4, is even the devil can meet your needs when you're in a needy moment. He's in a needy moment. And this guy just happens to show up with all the right stuff. And he just happens to have a good story to go along with David's question. Because, you know, if David meets Ziba, who he knows is supposed to be tending to Jonathan's son and taking care of him, he's got to ask, man, where where is my friend? Like, where where is the guy, the brother that I've been tending to? And I know I know he's there for me. And look at three and four on how Ziba responds. Look at look at this. So, so you get a you get a you get a fair warning at the very beginning. Beware of deception. Beware of the devil meeting your needs, even when you are needy, even when it is essential things, because the devil can do that. And then he speaks, verse three through four. Zeba told David he's in Jerusalem. Not only does does David or does um, Zeba tell David that he's in Jerusalem, he says, man, he's waiting to claim the throne. He's waiting to get back all the stuff that's been stripped away from him and his family. You can imagine the story maybe gets ad-libbed a little bit even more, saying, you know what he's really doing? He's staying in Jerusalem, and, he, and he's back there, and what he's doing is he's waiting on you and your son to destroy each other so that he can just sit on the throne again and take what is rightfully his. Remember what he said, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. It's a restoration of power. He's making this guy out to be like a horrible, horrible person. Now you picture this. You're David. You're on the run. Your own son is destroying your kingdom and causing all this. You finally run into somebody who you think is going to be a friend. They meet all your needs. And then it gets to the emotional part where, where you ask, man, where, where's my, where's my good? Oh, he's deserted you. You know, it's one thing when, when you feel deserted. And you're going through some really rough stuff, but that, isn't it just a really low kick when your own friends begin to desert you? When your own family begins to turn their back on you? When everybody seems to be against you? That's where David's at. David gets this news from, from Ziba that his own friend, somebody he had, he had sacrificed so much to make sure that, that he was tended to has deserted him. But the title of this section is about deception. So I got to I got to jump you forward to second Samuel chapter 19 and make sure you understand something. What Ziba is saying is lies. When you get to second Samuel chapter 19 verses 24 on, you're, you're going to realize Ziba had actually left Mephibosheth behind to make it look like he didn't support David. This sorry sapsucker has set this whole thing up to make himself look good. And is that not something the enemy will always try to do? To make himself look good, to make himself look better. Selfish motives. 
Maybe you're here this morning just to make sure you're not a zebra. That you're not doing the deceiving. That you're not setting somebody up. That you're not providing needs for somebody and then filling their head full of lies to take advantage and to better yourself. And that's where this guy's at. Can you imagine how much this has to hurt David, guys? In my opinion, Zeba is despicable, man. He's taking a guy at the worst moment and breaking his heart even more about feelings of a friend, about how he had reached the, the needs of this one guy. And now it's being re, re, uh, ill retaliated back toward him. Why do we believe more lies when we're hurt? Think about that. When we're, when we're at a, a moment of, of emotional compromise, of pain. I'm going to call it in a minute, flat out depression. You notice how many lies we believe? I mean, it's almost like we want to believe everything that's spoken to us and we don't do any investigating of our own. It's almost like we totally, and I don't want to get there yet, but it's almost like we totally forget everything Scripture has filled our mind and our heart with, everything that we know that God has spoken to us and about us, and we just go off the deep end believing the deceptive lies that the enemy's throwing at us. This is exactly what David does. He jumps right in to believe in it. No questions asked. The very next section, verse four, it says that all belong to him is now yours. Everything that the, the Meshavah was supposed to have, I'm giving to you, Zeba. You get all his land. You get all his stuff. You get everything. And his punishment for his disloyalty against me is that he loses it all. Notice how harsh and how quick this thing turns David's heart. He's at a heartbroken moment. He hears bad news. He instantly believes it and immediately begins to go against what we find out. in just a few chapters later was a loyal friend. How many loyal friends have we gone against and destroyed because of the heat of the moment and a lie that we forgot to check out and find out what was truth? That's where David's at. And this is the exact response that Zeba wants. Exact response Zeba wants. So 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 if you're like Zeba, you could say it this way. You're a wicked person when you use a crisis for your own benefit. Zeba is wicked because he's using a crisis for his own benefit and not even get onto that page. But my goodness, if that don't sound politi- pol- like politics and political groups, when we talk about looking at something that is wicked and a crisis and in pain and then making your own personal benefits out of it. And we don't like it when they do it. We don't like it when different groups and organizations do it. So why in the world do we attempt to do it ourselves? But we do. But we do ask yourself, are you a Zeba? Does someone, you know, a Zeba? Or are you like a David at this point right here? Because what happens is David's under pressure. And when you're under pressure, you're quick to jump to conclusions and make judgments and wrong decisions. You let the pressure push you the wrong direction. And that, that's where David's at. Scripture all throughout both the beginning, all the way to the end and right in the middle. We'll look at a couple of verses. It tells us we have a battle for discernment going on. Because we got a battle for our beliefs going on. Second Corinthians chapter 11 verses 14 through 15. It says, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Man, if that verse don't sound like it's describing Zeba to a T. Just listen at it. And it's no surprise if his servants, his worker. We know that everything Satan would want to do at this moment would be to destroy the lineage of David because we know the Messiah is coming out of that lineage. So the, so the enemy is at work and it should be no surprise if his servant, in this case, Ziba, also disguises himself as a servant of righteousness. Man, it looks like he's doing good, doesn't it? Looks like he's bringing needs and meeting gifts. How many worldly churches, organizations and so-called Christians sure do look good with their deeds of righteousness. Yet in their heart, they're as wicked as the enemy. Hmm? Matthew chapter seven, verse 15. So that, that's a transformed look. What about when they're disguised? Verse 15, it says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are like wolves. Church, all throughout scripture, including this story right here, we get warnings to open our eyes to make sure we are open to understanding what is good, true faith filled people versus those that are deceiving us with lies. And trying to get personal gain out of it. And we're warned against not being those things. So here you could almost say this. And I'll point out three dangers of depression 
do this. So you kind of get like three extra points in the sermon. They're free for you, right? The first one, you get a danger of this. Depression dis- distorts our perception of others. Think about that. When you are depressed, your perception of others gets drastically distorted. Am I right? Not only, well, we don't want to get there because that's another point, but, but, but it distorts our perception of others. David accepts Ziba's word right after it. At no other time do I believe in David's own, own time period and his own authority and his own writing other than right now while he's depressed. Would he have accepted just with the thought of a word what a man says about another man who is supposed to be his friend and then instantly began to trust that guy more than he trusted his friend, right? He, he lets his, his, his de- depression, that's where he's at, man. He's at a, he's at a heartbroken moment. And, and it colors his perception of Mitzibashef. It colors his perception of Ziba. It colors it a little better, right? Depression distorts our perception. It makes us willing to believe things we would not normally believe. It makes us willing to accept things we wouldn't normally accept. It, it, it gets us to trust people we wouldn't normally trust. And it gets us to doubt people we wouldn't normally doubt. Now, let that sink in, man, because I think a lot of this morning is all personal application for a lot of this stuff. Some of us have gotten to this very moment right here. David is weak in this spot emotionally. He's at a tough, tough moment. And because of that, his perception and the deception is able to change and get on him. All right. Now, let's get this next section, verses five through 13. So really the whole the whole rest, but a lot of lessons in it. We get shimmy. Shimmy comes on the scene straight up just cursing the king. You talk about kicking a man when he's down, right? I mean, this guy's lost his kingdom. He's lost his son. Matter of fact, his own son is the cause of all this. I mean, he is in a rough, rough spot. And then Shimmy comes in and he adds insult to injury. Right off the rip, it says that he comes in. He's cursing the king. He's throwing rock, picking up rocks and throwing them at him. He's throwing rocks at his servants and yelling at them. He's calling the king's names. He's charging him with being a violent and wicked man. You got to ask, what in the world is this guy's problem? Now, you, you picture it again. Now, David has has been at the Mount of Olives and he's been praying for people. The first guy runs into deceives him, which he doesn't even get to find out fully until later. Right now, it's just a heartbreak moment. The second guy he runs into just comes straight out his house. Throwing rocks and cussing at him and telling him how no good he is and how guilty he is of all this other stuff. What in the world is this guy's? What's this guy's deal? Well, well the first part of this deal is this. He's going to have two deals. The, the first part is this. The scripture tells us he's a descendant of Saul. That opened our eyes to see just a little bit of what this guy's motives is then, right? Maybe. Now, you, you got to take a couple different ideas here. Maybe Shimei has been living in fear of King David ever since he took over. He's one of Saul's family members. He's in the line of Saul. Maybe that's why he's moved out of town and living in an area maybe he doesn't like living in. Maybe he's not exactly thrilled with his new piece of property. And finally, this guy comes marching on by him on his downward moment. And Shimmy finally sees, oh, this opportunity, I can tell that sorry sapsucker exactly how I feel. And he comes out doing so. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's been anger and bitterness. Maybe it's been jealousy. Maybe all these things have just been built upon over all these years. I mean, vengeance is obviously something he wants. Look at verse 8. Let's read verse 8 again. Verse 8 says, uh, The Lord Yahweh has paid you back for all the blood of the house of Saul, whose place you became king. And he's handed the kingdom over to your son. And look at this. Look at how hateful and evil this whole thing sounds. He, he's actually throwing God into it. Oh, God's getting you, buddy. He's the one paying you back for all the ugliness that you did to Saul. For all the ugliness you did to Saul. Was David at one point ever ugly to Saul? Wasn't he the exact opposite? Don't you think David remembers those years of hiding in the caves? Do you think for a moment David didn't remember that moment where, where Saul's over there taking a leak and he had the opportunity to kill him at that very moment and yet he chose not to? We say yes and I think yes, but, but well, what's going to happen in a minute? I don't know. I don't know if he believe, I don't know if he, if he remembers everything that went on. This poor guy though, he's out to destroy any shrewd of dignity and confidence that David's got left. 
anything that's there, he's going to get rid of it at this very end. And church, you need to understand this. The enemy will continue to attack you the lower you go. The more you sink, the more attack will come. Deuteronomy 28 verse 7 talks about your enemy coming at you as one. Now, what you need to understand is when you read the verse, it kind of changes. And I'm going to save the end of the verse here for just a minute, right? But, but at the beginning, it says, and your enemy will come at you one way. That word one in the Hebrew that it's using means united. Meaning that your enemies are coming against you, united to destroy you for one purpose, to destroy you. Now, now let's look at David. Is this not exactly what's going on? He loses his throne, his son. There's, there's an enemy coming at him. Right. He didn't deal with other stuff. There's an enemy that's coming out. Now he gets across the thing and, and friendship is now being destroyed and he's being deceived. There's an enemy coming at him. And now he gets to to this guy, Shimmy, who comes out of his house off the rip, just yelling and throwing stones and stuff. Is that an enemy? coming? His enemy is united. It's a scary thing when your enemy is united against you. That's why that verse makes sure to understand your enemy's going to come at you one way. Now, if you heard it in Hebrew, you would understand your enemy's coming at you together. That they are piled up against you because they've got one purpose and they're working good together as a team. You know, there's so many verses about the enemy working good as a team. I wonder why there's not more verses about the church working together as a team. About there's not more verses about the righteous being united to destroy and overtake the united front of the enemy. But I tell you, open your Bible and read it. There's a lot of them, unfortunately, that don't mention us being united. It talks about the enemy being united. There's a united enemy coming against you is what it says. And church, understand this. There are always people ready to rejoice when a leader falls. I've never understood it. I don't care if we're talking about government wise. I told you he was corrupt. How about let's just say, man, you know what? We probably need to lift that guy up right now. He's he's supposed to be a representative. And if you don't like the government idea and you say, oh, the government's something different. You do it in the church world, too. How quick are we to destroy a worship leader or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or any cotton picking believer whenever they fall? Rather than try to pick them up and restore them to the rightful position that God says they're supposed to be in. We tear them down. We destroy them. We push them as hard as we can in the other direction. And of course, they never want to come back to the position they were supposed to be in. Do you not think that's what the enemy is doing right now to David? He's pushing him further and further away from Jerusalem, unitedly like a bulldozer coming against him to get him out of the way so that he never comes back to take over his throne. And if we let the enemy do that, that's exactly what he'll do. Thank God. Chapter eight or 16 is at the end of this, this, this chapter, this book. We've got more to come. David is going to finally wake up and realize some things, right? But it's a sad, sad thing when people rejoice when leaders fall. Shimei had his heart against David for a long time, but he can only show it. I love how much of a chicken this cat is. He's been he's been hating this guy since he took over the throne. Yet he can only be bold enough to yell and throw rocks when when David is at his lowest moment. Huh? Now, some of you, maybe I don't know. I said about some of us being Zeba. Maybe this morning, some of you might be a shimmy. Except for you ain't shimmying too much, right? No, think about it. You think you all high and shiny because you got your shimmy shimmy going on. And, and, and in reality, you're just a little punk that's got to attack somebody when they're at their lowest and worst possible moment. Why? What makes you think that's the right way? Man, personally, let me stand over here. I think you're the biggest coward ever if that's the way you got to fight your battle. Right? I think you are a coward if that's the way you got to come against somebody when they're down and out already. But I told you there was two reasons, two reasons and two problems that, that this guy's got for, for his thing, right? First was he's a descendant of Saul. Well, the second one, David's own man points out, he says, man, he's like a dead dog. He's got dead dog syndrome. Y'all know what dead dog syndrome is, right? Nobody knows what dead dog syndrome is? Dead dog syndrome is somebody's got a critical spirit. Oh, now we know somebody. Everybody, oh, if you only wrote down your own name, you're okay. If you wrote down anybody else's, come to the altar at the end, right? Dead dog syndrome is a syndrome of a critical spirit. This guy has got a critical spirit all about him. All he focuses on, everything that came out of his mouth since he saw him was negative. He's dwelling on the faults of others. He, he's vocal and unhappy about what's going on. He's allowed fear and worry to change his perception of somebody. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Bodhi says this at a moment like that. If y'all don't know who Bodhi is, good pastor. 
He says, if you can't say amen, maybe you ought to say ouch. I think that's so true and so good sometime, right? Right? Think about it. Think about it. Reasons people have a critical spirit. They let that fear and that worry get it. And, and, and here's some things that I think not only with Shimei, but with ourselves. We get critical because of self-esteem problems. You got a low self-esteem of yourself. So what do you want to do? You want to tear somebody else down. Who knows? This guy was a descendant of Saul. Who knows how close to the palace he lived in at one moment? And Saul loses everything and he gets on the flea. And now he's not only living in the city of Jerusalem, he's so far kicked out, he's on the other side of the Jordan River. His self-esteem has been tore down, right? He's not as high lifted up as he might. You could also combine this with with another thing. One of the other reasons we have a a critical spirit, uh, power. People who are power hungry have a critical spirit. They want power for the wrong reason. And because they don't have that power and that authority, they will critically kill anybody ahead of them that they can. And you know the crazy thing about this? We do this in the fields that we are in. Now, what I mean by that is this. We'll we'll start easy, right? I will tear down any other tire store. Not in South Carolina, not in the nation, in the world. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm a tire man. Right. So therefore, I don't like any other tire people. Somebody come in with a problem. They got a tire. Where'd you get the tire? I won't say no names, but it wasn't where we at. Right. And they'll say, I say, that's what you got for going somewhere else. Right. You got what you deserve. Those guys are horrible. Right. We do that with where we're at. Now, that's funny and that's cool. Right. Do we not do the same thing in every position, though? Do we not watch teachers tear down other teachers because they don't teach the same way they teach? Do we not watch worship leaders talk trash about other worship leaders because they don't do it the way they did it? Do we not watch pastors tear down other pastors because we're critical and we're afraid of losing some power? I'll never forget it. Some of you guys know him. Some of you guys don't. But but years ago, we're still at the Manor House and, and Howard came down from North Carolina. Uh, one, one of our elders used to have before he moved. And, and, and he came down and he sat on the back row for a couple of weeks, man. And finally, we took him to lunch and we're talking. And he tells me, he goes, man, I, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. So, but, I, but I was a pastor in North Carolina. And I'm like, man, why are you hiding that? Like, that's that's something that we could use. That could be beneficial to the kingdom of God. That is good stuff. And here's what he told me. And he was so right most of the time. He said, man, everywhere I go, if I let that out, people get scared because they're power hungry and they're worried about their jobs. He was afraid to tell people he was called by God to preach because he was afraid of people's mentality and their critical spirit to tear him down. How crazy is that? Right. Here's another one. Last one. I don't want to get on this too long. Jealousy. You get jealous of somebody and you get a critical spirit. And sometimes the sad thing is we're even jealous of their 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 good lives. We don't even have a reason to be critical. We're just critical because their life is better than our life. Their house is better. Their yard is greener. The grass is greener. They keep it cut and trimmed up good. They've got a better looking wife or a better looking husband. They make more money. They got a cooler vehicle. Whatever. We're just jealous. So we get critical on everything. We'll even throw it out there. You know, we get we get jealous of people who do and got what we want to do and get. Think about it. Think about it. Duke and them want to skip this morning. So I will pick on them now that it's online. It's fair, right? Nothing wrong with it. So I'll tell you, I get I get jealous when these guys want to go on these vacations and I'll even throw out stuff. How they got the money to do that. Right. Huh? And since he want to sit out, I'll call Big Joe out, too, because I ain't scared of nobody. Right. And, and, and tell you right now how he get a truck that I want. He got the motor I want. He got the transmission I want. He got the lift kit I want. And he even had the audacity to come to my tire store and buy the rims and tires I wanted. We get critical because we're jealous. Is that right? No, that's the stupidest thing there is. It's ugly. It's nasty. How about let's just be joyful for people? Is that a spirit of love, by the way? I mean, you think about this. If we're to be Christ-like, does Christ speak like that to us? Does God speak like that to us? Huh? If we're to be Christ-like, shouldn't we be speaking life and not death into people? Right? Shimmy comes back a couple more times, by the way, in this book, and he's like a roller coaster, guys. Because the next time he comes back, he's on his knees, like bowing down. I'm so sorry, David. I didn't really mean it. You, you ever, we'll get to that sermon when we get there, right? And then at the very end, he has to die because he's evil again, right? So, so he's like a roller coaster kind of guy who, who's going on. So we're going to come back to him. 
But but this morning, but this morning, we got to check our spirit and make sure we're not him. Now, here's what's awesome. I told you guys we're gonna come out of that Deuteronomy 28 uh, uh, verse seven. So so in Deuteronomy 28 seven, I said that your enemy's coming at you one way, right? They're coming at you united. That verse says that the end though, your enemy will come at you one way, but I will make them leave you seven ways. Now, what does that mean? That means all your enemies have been coming against you united, ready to kick your hiney, and then God steps in and gets involved. And when he gets involved, he busts their tails so bad that they run away in different directions. They're not united anymore. They're destroyed. Right? That all excites somebody other than Carla. Okay? If not, then you, you guys ain't been in enough battles, and I'm going to start praying you get in a battle. I'm telling you right now, I will pray that on you because it will grow you and make you better. Okay? I will, for your benefit, not for mine. All right? Be honest now and think on this. How awesome is it? God knows that united, your enemy will destroy you. So he steps in and he says, I'll destroy them. And the way I'll destroy them is I'll send them out and go in a bunch of different ways. And you watch it. Typically, if we stay stronger, strong enough, long enough, the enemy will start devouring themselves. We've watched it. How many times in illustrations of Old Testament battles? How many times in the New Testament? How many times in our personal lives? If you just sit back and let God do what God does. He'll take care of everything. Right. Right. Now, now here's something. Here's where here's my theology began to get a little a little changed up. I started reading. I, I read John and there's this woman who's brought before Jesus. Maybe I'll remember her. The, the, the crowd that's brought her has got a critical spirit. They want to destroy. Her. They're all token rocks, by the way, at this moment, in case you don't remember the scene. But not only do they have a critical spirit against this woman, they got a critical spirit against Jesus. Because they even say in their little, their little ploy, their little powwow, their united front, right? They're one right now. They, they even say it. They say, you know what? We'll get Jesus and he'll either destroy this lady or we'll be able to destroy him because we'll find fault with him. Think about it. So Jesus comes on in and does what Jesus does. He sits with the sinner. Picture the scene. She's standing there. They're all holding rocks. She feels horrible. Jesus come walking through the crowd. What's up, baby? I don't, Jesus, Jesus might even say that way. That's wrong. That's wrong. He comes in like a good father. Hello, my daughter. I don't want y'all to get it wrong, but Jesus was not trying to back on the lady, okay? He was trying to protect the lady. All right, so he comes in, he puts his arm up. My daughter. And she looks and he says, she says, they, they, they want to stone me. He says, oh, do they? And, and you picture it, and Jesus says, okay. So he sits down by her. And the scripture tells us he just starts drawing in the sand. Then we got all kind of perceptions and beliefs on what was drawn. That's a whole different sermon, right? But he finishes drawing. I don't think I did it right now. Let's see here. He finishes drawing. They see show. Oh, here you go. Verse eight. He's drawing in the sand and he writes something in the dirt. It says, and then verse seven, chapter John eight, verse seven. If any one of you is without sin, they cast the first stone. And then he goes back. Scripture tells that he goes back to drawing in the sand. He's not worried about these guys at all. These guys are standing around him with like Uzi guns. They hate her. They hate him. They want to destroy him. They're united. Jesus draws in the sand. He pops up. Hey, I got a question for you. Whichever one of you guys ain't got no sin, y'all can start throwing the rocks. And that's all I got to say. So he goes back to drawing in the sand again. They draw in the sand for, I don't know how long it is. I, I wonder why they're drawing. If you can hear the rocks drop and hit the ground. And you can hear the footsteps in the sand. Leave seven different ways. Is that not cool or what, right? The enemy is now divided. And he looks at the lady. It says he looks at her before he looked up. That's because Jesus knows everything, right? He looks at the lady and says, hey, who's here to get you? And she has to look up because she don't know everything. She's not Jesus, right? So she looks up and she says, nobody. Nobody. How does Jesus deal with a critical spirit? He reminds us that our ultimate motive is supposed to be love, not destruction. Our ultimate motive is to be love and not destruction. First, John even says that if we're dumb enough to think that's that's my translation. If we are uh, uh, slow enough to think we have no sin, we've deceived ourselves. If we think we don't have enough problem, then the truth is not in us is what it says. Now, who is the truth? Jesus. And Jesus is also love. So therefore, he's telling us if we deceive ourselves into thinking we don't have a problem of our own, then the truth is not in us. But also love is not in us. 
Luckily, that verse wraps it up for us good people. It says if you confess your sins and you're faithful, he's just to, to, to forgive them and take care of all the unrighteousness. But if you're stuck in that middle and you don't have the truth and you don't have love, then that's where we get into this argument about judgment spirit. Right? Because we're quick to say, oh, you're not supposed to judge, you're not supposed to judge. Let me let you understand, when you when you look at a lot of the verses, maybe we do a whole sermon on this later one day too. When you look at all the verses that refer to judgment and judging people and, and all that kind of stuff, all of the lessons deal with the motive. Which means this, I can hold any of you accountable and you can hold me accountable. And to people outside or even inside, it may look like judgment. But your motive and my motive better be love. I want to restore you back to your position. I want to restore your mind back to where Jesus and what God says about you rather than what the enemy says about you. You see the difference? It's not judgment as in wanting to tear down and destroy somebody like some people. It's a judgment. No, man, I am worried about you. So therefore, I want to uplift you. And if you worry about me that way, then you should want to uplift me that way. And that is one of the things that it's trying to do. So, so ask yourself before next time, what's your motive? You get back to verse eight and this guy's motive is clear. <laughs> God's going to get you because you got so much blood about Saul and his family on you. Right. You were just evil. Right. Now, outwardly, let's be honest. Now, you got to put yourself back in Saul. I mean, David's David's seat. Outwardly, this looks like the guy's right, doesn't it? I've brought my own destruction on myself. Sometimes our sin will do that. Outwardly, it looks right. But but let's look at exactly what the guy says. He's not saying you brought it on yourself. He's saying you brought it on yourself because you destroyed Saul's family. See, the enemy will get you with a little half-truths. Yeah, you brought it on yourself, but he didn't do anything against Saul's family. That's why it's so important to know the whole truth. The the devil will always want to get you with a half-truth. That's why it's important to know the whole truth. Because the minute he gets him with that little bit, he's now got David's mind going. And David's mind's going to go in the wrong direction. Look at David's response though first. Because we get a couple illustrations here. First thing. Now you got to picture this. When David leaves Jerusalem, by the way, I don't know if you guys remember a couple weeks ago, he's, he's marching out with a big group. That's not a big group in comparison to all the army of, of Jerusalem, right? But he's marching out with his family, all them wives, leaves the concubines behind because they secondhand, right? Then he's got some of his kids with him. He's got his friends with him. You know who else is with David when he goes marching out? We talked about them a lot. There's 600 of them. His mighty men. So you got David crossing the Jordan, crossing the Mount of Olives, stopped to pray, weeping, crying. Then he comes walking through, gets his bad news about another friend. He's deceived. Then he keeps on walking. And this punk comes up out his house. Talking trash while David is there with his mighty men. Men who are like superheroes of the Old Testament, right? Like they could. Look at look at one of the guys. What's one of the guys say? I think it's verse 9 and verse 10. He says, Hey, you want me to make him a head shorter? Like there, there's no there's no question about it. I can cut his head off right now. Like it ain't no problem. Like he didn't ask, you want me to shut him up? You want me to close it? Like one of us would have said, You want me to close his mouth? Like, I, I can pop him in the mouth on top. This guy says, you want me to cut his head off. That's a bad dude. Like, when your first thought is cutting somebody's head off, you're like next level. All right? Rambo looks like a girl right now. All right? Abishai is the man. David, I'll make him a head shorter if you want, right? No big deal. No problem. Yet David says what in verse 10? Let him be. Let, 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 him, let him be. Now, when I first read this, and part of this is so true now, guys, that this first part is right. David knew what it was like to find mercy. So therefore, he knew what it was like to have a need to show mercy. If you've received mercy, you know how important it is to give mercy. Okay, so so there's where David is, right? So you could ask yourself, here, here, here's me. I'll tell you a lot of application. Here's a question for you right now in your life. How good are you at showing mercy to those that have wronged you? How good are you at showing mercy to those that have wronged you, right? See, we, we can't control how we respond. I mean, we can't control how they respond. That was bad. We can't control how they respond, but we are responsible 100% for our response. No matter what the thing is, we're responsible for the way we respond. And unfortunately, there's always a hint of truth in most criticism. But David let that hint get in his head. And he says, let, let him alone. Let, let, just, just let him keep on cussing, man. Let it. 
I don't even know exactly what he's thinking. But one of the first lessons I wrote down in this thing is the example right here as far as inaction. Now understand our action, our belief is where we're going to get a drastic difference here in just a minute. But in action, he's flat out saying, look, I could get revenge, but I'm not going to. So there's a lesson. Maybe some of you can get revenge, but you don't need to. Right? Maybe you need to. Get, it ain't worth it. Right? Whatever that, that problem was, whatever that thing was. Then David gets a little deeper into his understanding. And he says, you know what, really, guys, he's talking to his men, really, guys, I, I don't have a, a shimmy problem. I got an Absalom problem. Right? But think about it. He says, see how my son who comes from my own body seeks my life. Of course, this Benjamite would, too. What, what he's saying is this, and here, here it is. When you're in deep moment, you've got to be like David at this moment still. You've got to keep the right perspective going. He understands, that guy's not my enemy. My enemy is my son who's taking my kingdom from me right now. Right? My enemy is myself who allowed it to get that far. Notice what he's going now. He understands the real problem. And the real problem is not this guy talking trash in front of him. The real problem is the guy back there he was supposed to be fighting. Right? But how often is it, guys, that we get quick to jump on fights we ain't supposed to be in when we're in dark moments like that? How quick is it we start fighting anybody and everybody that comes and gets us about anything and everything? All because our emotions are stirred up the wrong way. We get caught up fighting battles and fighting enemies that we were never supposed to be fighting and who we were never even supposed to be talking to, right? Wasting time and wasting energy. But one thing David does do, and I give him credit for it this moment, he recognizes the hand of God in everything. At least he wants to in action. Now here's my butt and here's my big thing right here. Remember this as I transition. This is a section of chapters where David is on a downward spiral. So that means everything in this chapter can't be good news for David. And we know it's not, except for for David's actions, it's looking all right. But David says something right here in these verses. And here's danger number two of depression. Depression distorts our perception of God. Mm. His action was so right, but his belief. I believe, and I believe God has confirmed this morning beyond a shadow of a doubt, his belief is so wrong. Because what does he say? What does he You ain't got to read it. Give me, give me the translation yourselves. Oh, maybe God told him to do this. Abishai? Abishai, don't, don't go cut his head off. He's preaching from God to me. You, you see the problem with this belief? Do we understand it? Because it's easy to look at this chapter and be like, oh, David did an awesome job trusting in God to curse him. I ain't never read a verse about God cursing any of his anointed people. Huh? But let's get into this thing. What does God actually say about David so far in this series? Maybe like three main things. You get an extra one, you get extra credit. Right? What does he say? He's a man after my own heart. Well, that, that doesn't sound like what Shimmy's saying. What else does he say? He's my anointed. Man, you guys are on top of it. I love you guys. Awesome. He's anointed. He's a man after my own heart. And then the third thing he just said not too long ago, right after he got out of his sin. You will be blessed. Oh, man, I knew you guys could get it, right? Awesomeness right here. Matt, as you take over youth group, make sure you understand. You may have to ad lib some stuff so they get it. But they will get it, right? He's anointed, he's a man after God's own heart, and he's going to be blessed by God. That's what God said. Is any of that what Shimmy says? Church, you better know the difference between what God says about you versus what the enemy's trying to say about you. Okay? David knew. David knew how to treat God's anointed. Look at what he did for Saul. Correct? So he knew he shouldn't be treated this way. Look at the Psalms he's written during most of his life. He's singing about God's goodness and mercy and loving kindness. Read some of the Psalms, right? But yet where's this belief system right now? All these accusations are lies. But David has now allowed the, the lie, the deception, to change the way he's feeling about his perception of God. He, he's not looking at God's goodness and mercy and blessing and loving kindness right now, is he? He's saying, oh man, maybe God is trying to smite me. He's beginning to wonder what some of us, why is God doing this to me? Why is God letting this happen to me? Is God trying to destroy me? Maybe God doesn't love me anymore. Some of you have been in those thoughts. Some of you will get to those thoughts. 
And here's why I'm harping on this so much. If the enemy can get you to believe just a little lie about yourself, he'll get you to believe more and more and more and more and more until he's totally distorted your viewpoint of God and your viewpoint of yourself and what God says about you, right? Now, there's nobility in recognizing that God is sovereign. But this is not what we see with David. What we see with David really going on is this pity party. That's what's going on. And, and I wonder when, when I read verse 10, maybe God has spoken curses through Simeon to me. What about Psalm 51 that you just wrote, David? What about Psalm 51 where you just wrote where God promised you blessing and not cursing? Where God told you in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that your lineage was going to have an eternal kingdom that would never be taken away. What about it where he said, I put your sin away, I've washed it with the hyssop, and I've made you white in the snow? What about all that? What about those viewpoints, David? You see, David's problem, and his problem now for a couple of chapters, I believe, is he doesn't believe everything, or at least he's not fully aware of everything that's truth of the gospel for him. See, you and I think the gospel just started in the New Testament. It didn't just start. Then it's been going on. It's got lots of truth to it. It's more than, than just Christ saving you from hell. Okay, it's, it's, it's way more than that. He's living with the guilt in a sense of condemnation, so he's lost touch with the gospel. The problem is for chapters, he's not living in the reality of what God says about him. So he sees himself as the enemy sees him. And he relates to his sons as the enemy has done. Is this us? Do we actually live in light of what the enemy says or do we live in light of what God has says about us? Yes, David's got consequences of sin. Don't get me wrong. But God has told him, I still got a plan for you, David. There's still promises for you, David. Eternal kingdom and eternal plans, right? Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will flow from me all the days of my life. That verse didn't stop being true. That, that verse didn't change, right? God still uses David's family to get the Messiah here. Is there consequences to sin? Yes. You know, if you break arm, it still hurts. If you get a black eye, it still hurts, right? Some of our consequences are, are general. People get sick, people get hurt, and people die. That's a consequence of sin. Just general consequence of sin. Th- then there's more, more direct consequence of sin. Some of us have broken marriages. Some of us have, have estranged relationships with our children. Some of us have a body that's messed up because we played with drugs too long. Some of us have lost our jobs. Some of us are broke. Some of us ain't got nothing. And that's a direct consequence of probably decisions that you've made, right? But when we look at what, what Christ has done and what God says, he says, I'll take away the ultimate penalty of sin, right? The, the, the word given, what did he tell him in Psalm 23, verse 6? You will not die. Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. What are we, what are we told in Ephesians chapter 1? I'm working in all things. Romans 8, 28 that we know. I'm working in all things for your good, right? Your sin is not the final word over you. Sure, you're, divor- you're divorced, maybe, sure. But your identity is not a divorced person. Nobody introduced, hey, I'm a divorced person. What? No. Right? You're a child of God. Sure, you might, you might have lost your virginity. You might have lost your job from stealing. You might have had a problem with your temper and hit somebody or, or abused your child. But in Christ, he doesn't say you were these things. Christ doesn't say you're an adulterer. You're a thief. You're an abuser. Christ says you got a new identity, a new reality. He said, sure, there's a moment where you got to go to the cross and, and, and you got to be buried for three days. But, but at the end of those three days, where there's a new you coming out, right? Again, partial truths. The enemy will attack you with partial truth. Yes. In one sense, some of you have committed adultery and that's, that, that's something that happened. In one sense, you've stolen something. You've abused somebody. But I'm so grateful that God speaks louder. I'm so grateful that God speaks louder and clearer than the enemy can about this stuff. And he says that there's a new you and a real you that he's raised with Christ. And when Christ said it is finished, new life begins. Right. So some of you felt abandoned like David may have been feeling. Maybe you've lost a spouse or a child or a parent. But none of you are ultimately abandoned. Because Jesus took that ultimate abandonment while he was on the cross for us. And in our darkest hour, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can say, I don't have anything to fear because thou art with me. You are with me through this. Your sins have consequences, right? But God doesn't always take those away. Those are, those are pain. Those are all, but God works redemptively through painful consequences to fulfill his plan for your life. And we've got to start remembering that. That song you say was so spot on. That's why I wanted it at the end. We've got to understand what he says about us. Because the last thing depression does, it distorts our perception of ourselves. Look at 11 through 24. We kind of hint at him already. 
He, t- he tells Abishai no. But, but why does he say no? Look at verse 11. My son who came from my, my own self, he's seeking to destroy me. So why, why shouldn't this guy do it, right? What's he saying? I, I don't deserve any better than this. Again, he's on his pity party. I deserve to be condemned just like this. Now, church, understand me. We never deserve the goodness and the blessings of God. But th- this, this is just a, a whole nother level of this. So, so I want to ask you this morning as we get ready to wrap this thing up, where's your confidence at? We, we talk about confidence so much. I don't really know if it's possible to put them on the screen this late, but Philippians 1, 6. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 3. See if y'all can grab one over there. I'll grab one up here. This didn't come till later. But, it, but it's, it's too good to, too good to miss. Because we live in a generation what? That wants to promote confidence, right? Oh, I just want my children to be more confident. I just want myself to be more confident. I just wish I could look in the mirror and be confident, right? The, the question, though, here's what God gave me this morning. The question is not necessarily how much confidence you've got. It's where's your confidence coming from? Because you can have a whole bunch of confidence, but if it's in the wrong thing, what good is that going to do? See, confidence is a biblical word. It's not this new age thing that, we, that we've now turned it into. It's a biblical word. Look at Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this. That's a guy who's speaking with confidence, right? I am sure of this. That he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a confident sounding guy. Right? Uh, second Corinthians chapter three. I'm going to read verses four and five. Somebody else grab Hebrews 10, 19. Y'all don't know y'all is coming to a Bible study. Such is the confidence we have through Christ before God. It is not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything is coming from ourselves, but in our uh, adequacy from God. He's confident, right? Yeah, he's confident. I like it. Anybody grab Hebrews yet? Who got Hebrews 10, 19? Oh, it's already on the screen. Boy, they bad back there in that sound room, right? Therefore, brothers, talking to the church, since we have boldness, that sounds like confidence, right? Boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. Now, I could go on all day long. That was just three I had a chance to grab right before I came downstairs. But what do you notice about all three of these? The word confidence is there, or an interpretation of confidence is there. You know what's not there? The word self. The word self is nowhere in there. I think when we talk about self-confidence nowadays, Paul and the early believers, they have no idea what we're talking about. Paul even got to a point, you may remember, he gets to a point where he's arguing with with some guys who thought early believers had to be circumcised. You, You remember this argument? He's telling them that they got to be circumcised because if they really join, then they got to have that outward appearance. Now, now, just to wrap that thing up for you, in case some of you had never been there, you need to understand this. Paul so against it because it's easy to do an outward thing, ain't it? That would make it easy. Boom, done, I'm one. But that ain't what it's supposed to be about. But pa- Paul takes it even further now. Paul's got a little bit of wisdom himself like Solomon. He says, oh, you guys want to play that game about who's more qualified. He said, well, let me tell you about myself. And what's he telling he lists, what, seven or eight things about how awesome he is? I done memorized the first five books of the Bible. You done that? I circumcised on the right day, right? I've been brought up in the right place. I've been studying since I was little about everything. And, and the list goes on. And the list goes on, right? But then at the very end, Paul wraps that thing up for the believers, and he writes and says, all those things are useless because they're self-confidence. And my confidence... My viewpoint of myself has got to change into God's viewpoint of me. That's what he's getting at. You know, look, you can do it all. But if you do it all with the wrong motive and the wrong intention, it's useless. It's useless. You get your ultimate confidence from God. Right? So it's not a matter of how much confidence you got. The question is, where's your confidence covered? Some of us are confidence and confident. Confident and confidence. Yeah, that. Right? We get confident in our confidence. But our confidence is in the wrong thing, so it doesn't do any good. That's a lot of confidence in the wrong thing. Here's where David's at, guys. Depression comes when we stop trusting God. He's allowed the enemy to get in and start changing. Maybe God doesn't know best, or maybe maybe God's best is to destroy me rather than to benefit me. Maybe God didn't mean what he said. Maybe maybe he's forgotten and started believing half-truths rather than whole-truths about God. 
And when those get in there, we make bad decisions. Not only maybe our actions don't change, but our beliefs do. And we lose sight of our purpose and we lose sight of our value. I, I watched a thing the other day about the Mesopotamian pots. You know, back in the day, every every culture made pots, right? I mean, pottery was a big thing. They made them beautiful. They decorated them. All that. These, these Mesopotamians, this, this one tribe, they would make these pots, no matter how big, how beautiful. Then they would hold them out after they dried and drop them on a rock. I'm like, what? Yeah, that's right. I was like, what in the world? Then, then they had another group of, of, of tribe members that would come in and put this thing back together with gold as the glue. And I sat there and I looked at that thing and then they showed what they were like selling for nowadays, you know, in, in the market. They were worth 25 times what a, a little pot was done by another tribe, right? Because in their brokenness, they became more valuable, right? Because they were put back together with more valuable stuff. I think sometimes the more broken we could get, the better off we would be. Because God would have to put us back together with some of his own stuff. You know, we, we look at things like like Romans 8, 28, where, where in all things God's working, right? Well, is all things all things or not? Does it mean the bad you should? Does it mean the, the rough stuff that somebody's trying to throw on you? I, I got it right here in my notes. The, the Greek word for all, you need to write this down. Just one more note. One more note, right? The Greek word for all literally means, everybody got the papers out? It means all. That's a college education right there, guys. That's using a Strong's Concordance and BlueLetterBible.com to get stuff run. Right? It literally means all. The tragedy, though, is David has forgotten some of this stuff. And because he's forgotten it, he's not embracing who God said he is. He's embracing who the enemy says he is. Do we not do the same thing? Do we not give the enemy so much credit that we begin to allow him to distort our view of who God says we are? You know, there was one more verse in that story. Go back to the, to the John chapter 8. Should be the last verse on the screen for today. Some of you should have amen right there because I could keep going. Verse 11, she answers. He asked her, who, who was there? She says, no one, Lord. Now, she's now got a viewpoint changed of who he is. She's now got a viewpoint of what he came to do. Jesus knows the heart, so I believe she's now got a change of heart. Was she guilty of some stuff? I guarantee it. But Jesus came and dealt with her in a different way than they wanted. And then you get this last part, neither do I condemn you. And we always stop it right there, but I made sure to put the end up there. We always stop it. Neither do I. You're not condemned because Jesus said you're not condemned. And that is such truth. And that is such goodness. But Jesus adds, go. And from now on, do not sin anymore. When you live in light of who Jesus says you are and who the Lord says you are, you change the way you live. And if you don't change the way you live, your actions and your beliefs, I would have to second guess that you don't understand who Jesus said you are. And who Jesus said he is and what Jesus said he can do through you and for you to accomplish great things. Let's stop letting the enemy distort our perception. We, we ought to. You're in a couple different spots right now. Maybe you've had your eyes open that you've been deceived. And that's the moment you just need to go into some prayer and have them eyes washed away. Tell Jesus, spit my eyeballs and wash it away just like you did for that blind man. Right. If you got to spit twice, do it twice. Right. Clean them out. Good. Some of us maybe are guilty of being the deceivers. Some of us are guilty of being the, the critical spirit. We need to ask God to take those things away from us because they're no good up in the house of the Lord and the temple of the Lord. And then some of us are like, David, we've just been, man, we've been hit by a storm in life. Some of it self-inflicted, some of it inflicted by others. But we need to remember not who the world, who the conditions, who our sin who the devil says I am. We need to remember who he says I am. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much, God. God, I love this section as small as it is with so much information, so much application, God. And I pray right now, Lord God, that you open hearts and minds, Lord. Hearts and minds that might have come in here stubborn and closed. God, I pray that you crack them open right now, Lord God, so that your word can get in. So that your truth can get in. God, help us to know more truth so that we can combat the enemy's lies. 
God, help us right now to be to be broken on the inside if we need to so that you can put us back together, God, so that you can be that holy gold that makes us so much more valuable, God. God, so that we can be used again and brought back to our rightful place in our rightful position. God, keep working on us, Lord God, so that we can be better servants for you. Lord, I pray right now that you move in just a special way over every person in this room, every person online at their houses, God, every person that will watch this message later. God, use your word to make the biggest difference in our lives. For it's in your great name we pray. Amen.